Hello and welcome to the Life on This podcast. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as a no bullshit conversation about uh, reimagining religion and remixing spirituality. Uh, you know, thought for the day after four pints or on being gone day drinking, if that means any more to you. Uh, and we always interview a guest, and because uh, we decided to do a Christmas and New Year doubleheader where my co host James interviews me. Uh, that's where he did that at Christmas. And then I'm interviewing him right now. And I'm really excited because I get to talk about how great James is. Oh, there's one part which now makes me really want to slag him off. But uh, I won't because one of the reasons I was looking forward to it is that I just want to help everyone in the world know how great James Croft is. Uh, Dr. James Croft, uh, for starters, he is just an academic machine. Uh, James has got uh, graduate uh, degrees from Cambridge and Harvard. Uh, his, I went to look at him up on LinkedIn. Uh, so he got, uh, check this out, under what he did at Cambridge. Graduated double first class, George Peabody Prize for Exceptional Academic Performance, Class 1. A foundation uh, award for achieving Class 1 in every paper. Uh, and then first recipient of Joyce Ridley Memorial Prize for Best Performance in the University in the Arts and Education paper, Coral Ex Exhibition. Some of that I don't even know what it means, but what it means is that this guy's got a brain and a half. He got a master's degree in Harvard in Art and Education. Then he got his doctorate there, again from the Graduate School of Education. And after that, he went and decided to become a minister in a in the ethical society so he went and qualified as a minister he has been an activist in uh, in sort of gay rights he's also been an uh, activist in the humanist world when black lives matter kicked off in st louis in ferguson james was uh, in the heart of the action sort of uh, bailing people out of jail uh, getting arrested a few times himself and He's just a lovely person. He's brilliant, wise, funny, kind, and really considerate. And I admire him to the point of jealousy, except I'm not jealous, because he's just great. And I can't wait for you to get to know him better. Uh, one way of getting to know him even better would be, uh, yeah, we've also, at the Life on This Project, we've also got courses and we've got community small groups. And Life on This 101 starts on January the 13th and James is going to be facilitating with me. Uh, and that is a 12-week collective learning experience. If you go to lifefulness.io forward slash lifefulness hyphen 101, you'll find out more about it. And uh, yeah, just on with the podcast on with James. I sh oh, I've just remembered one thing. Uh, because this is coming out on New Year, we decided to kick off with a bit of a review of the how the podcast has gone this year. And I hope that you know that's just us showing that you you know we've got to go and live what we're saying and like take stock and uh, review and all of that stuff. So that's going to be the first bit, and then it's going to be interviewing James. Thanks so much for downloading the pod. This is our New Year's uh, episode. We're going to, before we go and interview James, we're going to do a bit of a reflection on the year that has been. <laughs> so James, we have, what a reflection on, what a year to reflect upon. Yes. 
my favorite year ever 2020 yeah so beautifully uh, constructed you got the two twos you got the two zeros you got them alternating there so it's not overbalanced it's a gorgeous year aesthetically mm. speaking yeah and so uh i think it'd be good to go and do a bit of a reflection on this uh to, to prevent it from leaking out of it just a reflection on this podcast like what uh what have uh you learned from it what have you got from it what has been surprising what uh what do you think would be good to work uh, on in the future so uh yeah maybe if we start with the what well, yeah what, what have you liked about it Oh, wow. What haven't I liked about it? Firstly, it's been great to have a scheduled time each week, Sanderson, to hang out with you. It's a lot of fun. You're a very fun, upbeat, energetic person. I always look forward to it every week, even when I've got a super busy day. I'm like, this is the part where I can uh, hang out with someone who I also feel like the more I listen to you talk about this work, the more I find myself going, yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> that I that I get that vibe feeling of I get what Sansa is trying to do on a deep level, not just, oh yeah, I intellectually understand it, but this is the sort of work that I want to be engaged in. So that's been super fun. Also, obviously, the guests that we've been able to pull in. What an amazing series of guests for our first few months of the podcast, from people who are internationally known to people who are becoming known, but people who have fascinating insights into, into life, celebration, moderation, <laughs> uh, yeah, right, economics and politics and just everything. We've explored so many things. It's been fascinating to talk to them. Yeah, and so, yeah, I will... Uh build on that before complimenting you but I'm going to interview you and believe you me there's a lot of compliments coming your way the guests have really influenced not only have they just been great like it's super like I mean Tim mentioned what a guy spending wow. time and snow uh there's uh and we've also got some mm, fun guests coming up etc but then uh like have really gone and also explored the ideas within it like actually so on one thing my conception of changing the world i like i always knew that one part of that so that's our translation of evangelism you know which is obviously a really important part of uh, congregational communities particularly uh, some christian and muslim ones but there's a bit that like translated it to changing the world but then I, and now I've actually realized that there is something about speaking about what you believe in, what you believe in, which is important as well. And that there's actually something which is transformative in the act of communication as a way of saying, I believe this, the rest of the world, I, I put this out there to the rest of the world. In the previous podcast, I mentioned that I was going to sort of get in touch with a, I'm in touch with a theatre director to help me with my social media stage fright, which is, uh, but a part of that is because like, I sometimes find it hard to just go, no, this is like, I'm like, this is what I dedicate my life to. I think it's really important. I see the change it makes. And yet there's certain, some parts of social media where I just can't really say that. Uh, uh, I'm sort of the reverse of uh, virtue signaling. I'm like virtue unsignaling. <laughs> uh, the uh, yeah, and so and there's all manner of you know, for instance, celebration, I, which was the translation of worship. I think that uh, like contemplate like that part is really important. But then going back, yeah, just the like it's been super great to uh, work with you. But we're going to get into uh gonna go and get into that a bit more and then like in the new year then what would be your uh on your 
sort of uh, either your resolution or what you'd want us to be able to do with the podcast? Well, I think that one of the things we've already started doing is getting a clearer idea between us of the flow of us as co-hosts. And I think that's been really, really developing. And I, I really think that we can continue to develop that until I think many podcasts take a bit of time to cohere into what will be their final form. And I think that we might still have some things to work out until we really get the form that really works. But I think we're definitely along the way. So that's one thing I think we can keep working on. I also want to be more contrary to popular opinion and belief about myself. I am not a good self-promoter. I actually hate talking about my own work. I will talk about other people's work endlessly, but I'm very hesitant to promote my own stuff but I'm trying to get better at that. Um, and that's one of my resolutions for the new year is getting a personal website up and, and being more conscious about saying, we've made a good thing. We think people will like it. Here it is. Yeah, that's quite uh, interesting. Like when we're, so this started, uh, by the way, if this is your first one we're listening to, we don't kick off everyone by reflecting on the podcast. This is our it's new year. It's the holidays. It's the uh, new year. And the, is that this started off as a book. And I remember when we were sort of writing the book, like there's times I was like, we've both committed our lives to adapting the congregational community in a way that everyone can join in because we think it's like the right thing to do with our lives. And yet like we're like hedging around it, make it talking about it as though like it's, oh, it's a, do this if you want. Like we think it's the most important thing there is. And right. Yeah. So there's, there's definitely a, a part of that of really sort of, uh, being able to communicate my own and I think our own excitement around it. Uh, and then for me, like a big thing is the community aspect of it, of really like there's been, people have been applying and I've been having conversations with uh, community members who are joining. And I just uh, saw that there's someone who's been quite supportive online uh, who said that she wants to join. And it's amazing. Yeah, and so like really like working out how this joins up with the community in a really meaningful way. Uh, and then there's also just another one, which is like wanting to be able to get like more community voices involved somehow. I don't yet know what that would look like, but that would be something which is uh, really great to go and hear like what's happening in people's lives around lifefulness and sort of being able right. to celebrate the community and go and hear what it, it looks like in practice. Remember when we interviewed John Viveki and I asked him, so what are we like John Vakey, amazing guest we love him we really want him back it was on awesome and, it was a wonderful conversation and I will say this to his face uh the uh <laughs> so like and he like gave this amazing theoretical explanation of the meaning crisis how like it's like how it derives from cognitive science how it uh like where it's how it's evolved from our history and it's like okay but what would that look like in sort of in someone's life and then I was like, oh, okay, well, it's no mention of anyone's life. It's just entirely sort of It like was very theoretical. Theoretical. That academics work out often, but that's, so yeah, that, I think that's one of the valuable things that I've found is that actually a lot of these high-level theoretical ideas do have application in people's lives. You just need to make the connection. Yeah, so, uh, well, look, those are our, yeah, some of our hopes and dreams for the podcast. And uh, I mean, I'm going to do more of this bigging you up, James, but it's been like a total delight to uh, like start working with you uh, during uh, this crisis. And I'm going to save a bit of that. I'm going to actually just go and wind into the next thing uh, to go and 
tell you more about how much I like and admire you. Uh, oh. And I backed off from saying love, but I love you, man. Uh, and so what I'm going to do is uh, that's the end of our little New Year's uh, reflection. I hope that whatever you're looking at for next year, you're able to go and find a little time to reflect, a time to go and plan, and a time to ensure that 2021 is a lot better than 2020, which shouldn't be hard. Uh, okay, James, and now uh, due to seamless radio editing, we are now in an interview. And so James Croft is with me. Uh, James Croft is someone I've really admired for a long time. And we're going to really get into your career as uh, it's quite funny how we end up speaking in some like interviewee voice. Yes, uh, but uh, James Croft is someone I've admired from far for a long time. Uh, but so tell me more about and I've, I sort of I sort of feel I know the answer to this, but also don't like uh, what was the uh, religious philosophical or uh, sort of ethical background to your childhood? So there, there are some similarities and some differences between us in terms of our religious background. In, so I grew up in this non-religious household, no expectation that we would be religious at all. But I did go to a private school with a Christian foundation. I went to St. Paul's, which has the name because it was literally founded in St. Paul's Cathedral. And it had a lot of ceremonial Christianity, including the weekly assemblies which had sort of vaguely christian elements to them but also i was a choir boy i loved singing i joined all the choirs that they had and that included the chapel choir and that meant that once a month i got up early and donned a cassock and sang in the school chapel on the grounds of the school and i remember being really fascinated by it i liked it i liked the sense that this was a group of people coming together to talk about important things, to think about how to live life, to kind of take a time out of the week to consider how they were living. I didn't believe a single word of it. I never did. I thought it was very silly, the approach to life they were offering in many ways, not in an insulting way, but in a like, how can anyone really believe this kind of way? And I used to argue with my school friends about it sometimes. But I I remember liking actually singing the services. I appreciated the, the space set aside from normal life to think about the rest of life. And that stuck with me. And so although I was not religious and I've never considered myself religious in a traditional way, I've always been interested in religion and the spaces that religions create. That is great. And that is going to be the tee off to the, uh, I think the first question I'm going to ask you once we've done the uh, six lifefulness questions. And so lifefulness is made up of, you know, it's a way of adapting the lessons of the spiritual community. So that in your own life, and there's six different pillars of lifefulness. And the first one is ultimate meaning. So what would you say that your ultimate meaning is? I've thought about this a lot because we've heard a lot of our guests talk about it, but I, I really still think that my ultimate meaning is, is growth. I feel most myself when I'm in an environment, when I'm learning something new, and when I feel like I'm expanding my powers in some way, that I'm not staying still, being stagnant. I, I just, I'm terrified of the idea that I won't make the most of my potential while I'm here. 
And that's my like great life fear is kind of getting to the end and looking back and feeling like I could have done more. And so I think that that means that my ultimate meaning is the fulfillment of human potential. And if I look back at my career, it sounds weird to talk about it like that, but I've been, I was a high school teacher. I then studied human development for my master's and doctorate. I, my first ever job was teaching Shakespeare in prisons, which really taught me a lot about human potential and how we squander it. And so I, I've very been very committed to the idea that human beings are extraordinary creatures. We can do a lot more than we imagine we can do. And that I want to help people do more. Great. Thanks so much. And then celebration and contemplation is our translation of worship. So uh, where do you find those moments to connect uh, irrationally and exuberantly in a group or sort of uh, contemplate on your own? The, rash, the, the irrationally and exuberantly in a group is easy. It's, it's in group singing. I just love singing in a group. I've had my most potent spiritual experiences all are related to group singing. And uh, I, I will sing in a group for any reason. I once spent three hours with the Hare Krishnas chanting just because I loved it, not because I wanted to join, but because the chanting itself was absolutely wonderful. Uh, and I've done shape note singing and all sorts of weird types of really intense group singing, which is really loud and goes on for a long time. There's something about that that I love. I'm trained in the British choral tradition, so that's kind of my home, but I will sing with basically any group of people anywhere for any reason. I love that. In terms of contemplation, I'm not so good at having structured as something I'm trying to build more into my life. You said you run every day. I'm tr I used to walk everywhere because I didn't learn to drive until recently. And I lived in the United States for more than 10 years now. And really everyone drives everywhere here, but I would walk everywhere. And I realized that when I walk is when I do a lot of my contemplation, my processing, my kind of working through ideas. So I'm trying to be more conscious about working that into my life. I am a terrible meditator. I hate it. It makes me, I get so antsy. I just detest it. Um, and I'm not good at mindfulness practices or anything like that. I find that things, I used to swim regularly up and down and that was very good for me. So I feel like I have to be active in order to, to do my contemplation. That's great. Uh, is it... Uh... No, it's Paolo Coelho. Uh, his uh, type of uh, contemplation is a type of, I think it's a Zen, uh, like archery meditation. Hello. Oh, sweet. I'll do that. <laughs> that sounds great. The, uh, so then uh, community life. Uh, where do you find community life? This is an interesting one. I lead a congregation. That's my full-time job. And so the easy thing would be to say that I find my community in that congregation. But the honest truth is, Sanderson, I don't. And the reason why is that I think you have a different relationship to a community when you're leading it and you're responsible for it than when you're a member of it. And I was thinking about that very much recently when we had our, our talent show, our Good Cheer talent show, which we did virtually that we've never done before because we can't meet. And I was like, oh, I'm going to relax. This is going to be, I'm going to be in the audience for this. It's all pre-recorded. And then when I was actually running it, I was like, no, I can't relax because I've got to, I've got to manage people's responses. So you can never be a full part of a community when you're leading mm, it. And yeah. that's nothing, that's not against my community. It's just, I have a different relationship mm -hmm. to it than a member. And so I, I found it very difficult to find community in St. Louis. I had it in Boston yeah. when I was studying there. 
when the sort of academic community, the people who are also there just to learn and to discover new things, that's kind of where I come alive. And I don't have that because I'm not in academia and I haven't been able to find a group of friends who recreate that for me. So right now I'm feeling a bit lonely community wise. Um, there is always much more when we were able to meet in person, but there is a sort of solidarity in being part of the gay community that I've always found mm. very affirming. Well, not always since I came out 10 years ago, but, um, <laughs> but very affirming because there's something about that shared experience that brings people together in a really magical way. The feeling that you can go to a gay bar anywhere in any city and not know anyone, but actually still know people mm. um, is very, very affirming. So I, I find that a, a strange sort of community. But in terms of the, I would like to be back into sort of academic community again, because I think those are my people. I feel so happy on university campuses, like I could spend my whole life on one. So I'd like to find that type of community again, because I don't have it right now. I think that's probably something I've learned. Like if you start a community because you want community, ha ha ha, jokes on you. Yeah, it, really <laughs> it really, that is a real unfortunate thing. Uh, the, so then the next one is uh, personal growth. Like what are your areas of personal and psychological growth at the moment? Right now, I think there are two. The first is my kind of lifelong battle not to be obsessed with whether people like me. And, and allow other people mm. to determine my worth for me, depending on whether they like me. I've always been a people pleaser. There are probably deep, there are definitely deep roots about that that I talk about with my therapist, but probably not with the people who listen to podcasts. I've got some things in my past that I'm dealing with. Part of it, it's about, you know, being a closeted gay kid in an all boys private school in London. Like that's, you know, that's, it's, there are some issues there about dealing with, with, self-hatred and doubt and things like that so that's one thing that i feel like i've made a lot of progress on in the last few years great therapist wonderful husband who is incredibly he's like a rock who helps structure everything mm. in my life if i'm like the chaos agent he is just the totally constant like structure that keeps me grounded and he's really helped me not care what other people think in a certain way in that not allow it to define mm. me so that's a big thing and then the other one is professionally i have been serving my congregation as one of their two clergy for more than six years now and you want some goddamn respect yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> i want them to fear yeah, me yeah. enough of this loving me bullshit but i've <laughs> terror i want absolutely <laughs> pant wetting terror whenever i walk down the hall um but in june i took over as a senior clergy person and at the same time because we were closed we didn't hire a secondary person so it's been an interesting time to like lose half your leadership team and um lead people through this pandemic and there's always a sense at least with me when i take on a new thing that i don't know what the fuck i'm doing i'm just faking it and I realized this past couple of weeks, I thought back on the last six or so months since June when I've been leading the congregation solo. And I actually thought, I'm not faking this. I'm actually doing it. I'm actually good at this. That it's not that I haven't done anything perfectly, uh, done anything like not perfectly, but I'm, I realized that I 
am good at this work, at least at many aspects of it, and that I'm doing a good job leading this community through this unprecedented time. And I'm just allowing myself to accept that. And I feel like that's good growth. Oh, that's great, mate. I swear to goodness, like, uh, <laughs> I've sort of announced I want to have a place where you can like, swear and uh, like, just be real. And I just said, I swear to goodness. Who am I? I'm a <laughs> 70 year old sort of uh, outraged Republican voter here. Uh, the, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, trying to help the trying to work through the desire for other people to like you and uh, having a touch of imposter syndrome. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of nodding heads here. And then yeah. uh, serving others. How do you serve others? I think that is what what I feel like I do with my community. Like the, the congregation, I think congregational leadership is an act of service. And I think it's a lot of giving to other people, often giving a lot of your time. It's a lot of work. And but also a lot of your emotional vulnerability in at least two ways. Firstly, because people reach out to you to talk about some of the difficult things that are happening in their lives. And I find that you can more easily make a connection with people when you're willing to be vulnerable about mm -hmm. the difficult moments in your lives. But also um, I speak regularly on Sundays in our equivalent of a sermon. Mm. And those always work better if they're personal and you're willing to open up about yourself. And so there's a lot of giving like that. I remember very vividly when I gave a talk about the soul and whether the soul exists and how we should think about soul and soulfulness and all this stuff. And I wove in the story of my father's death and how that happened and, and thinking about how much do I want to share about that and how much is it appropriate to share and how much is it going to bring alive this story and help people connect. And ultimately, I kind of think you just kind of share everything. You just give and give. And then people connect with it. They really, really connect mm. and it moves people. So I, th I think that is an act of service. Also, I'm an activist. I, I'm, I do a lot of protests, try and go down to the state house to testify in favor or against certain pieces of legislation when I can, um, and other forms of activism. And that was a major way that I, I tried to be of service to my community particularly after um, the Ferguson uprising after Mike Brown was killed, which was very soon after I moved to St. Louis. So that was a big deal. Yeah, and we're going to dig into that uh, later oh, on. Uh, the, uh, uh, and then lastly, uh, sort of changing the world. How do you sort of see your work and what you're doing as, you know, making the world as it should be? Well, I'm an unapologetically evangelical humanist in the sense that I, I actually do think that it's perfectly acceptable to go out and try and convince people to change their mind and <laughs> live a different way. I, I, I am just, I don't have any embarrassment about that at all. And so I've been arguing for many years since I first started doing, when I was a grad student, doing kind of public speaking on behalf of the humanist community in America. I was going around trying to convince these little groups you have to use more music, you have to use more art, you have to use more storytelling because that's what connects with people's emotions. It can't just be this dry, rational, why Bigfoot doesn't exist. Like, okay, that's great, but you really need to connect with the things that move people and, and the things they really care about in their lives if we're going to become a bigger movement. And so my form of evangelism, uh, I really want to make a beautiful, emotionally compelling humanism. And one thing we've done recently is we've released this little free ebook called The Magic of Humanism. It's really great. You can get it on the Ethical Society of St. Louis's website as a free PDF. And the reason I did that was as like a proof of concept of 
these ideas can be expressed beautifully in a well-designed, really well-produced, gorgeous photography, simple but evocative text, in a way that the best religious institutions present their ideas. And I just hate the aesthetic gulf between much of the secular world and much of the religious world, which has banging music and absolutely great literature like the pamphlets are so sumptuous and the experience when you go to a christian mega church is like you've got this amazing music and everyone's so happy and somehow everyone looks beautiful it's like the whole thing is so well produced and i want that for my ideas so that's kind of how i think about evangelism from my perspective oh well look i hey that is great uh so the first one I'm going to do is uh, just say how great I think you are, because this is probably going to do it in the introduction. But like, I think it is, and, and this will feed into the, um, you know, into the interview. But like, it is, I, I find it really amazing that you have got like, you know, so like your knowledge in, you know, like you've got your uh, doctorate in education, you have got your master's in education, you've got so many degrees, like your knowledge in all of these areas is like so profound but then also what i really like is that it is then coupled with like you're really willing to explore different ideas and i think you and i sometimes come from a slightly different place of mm. uh you know i'll be more sort of religiously minded maybe like even though i'm atheistic and then you'll you might not be that way and then we'll be able to go and move back and forwards between it but then it's also like with all of the education you've got and like all of those big fancy degrees behind your name like it would make perfect sense for you to become a pastor if you were going into christian the christian world because there's goddamn cathedrals you can join and there's mega churches and there's like there's very much stuff which can go and absorb your skills and knowledge and so like you've got to really believe it in order to and I'm, this is nothing against the ethical society you've gone and found like this amazing community i'm in awe of what they do but just that world itself of like non-religious congregations is so much smaller and it's just something so that small. i really uh admire about what you do and so on that topic uh, from that is i really wanted to go and find you just mentioned there you like you'd love to have that for your ideas to your mind what is the perfect uh, church of humanism lifefulness community what does that look like from when people walk in for the first time uh, into the building and then what does that community look like i've thought about this a lot and i i would love to create something like this firstly you'd have to have a really beautiful inspiring building like a, a building that represents in its own physical nature the the ideas that we're trying to create like some some of that the ethical study of st louis has a beautiful building it's a wonderful kind of spired roof that kind of reaches reaches up reaches to the highest as we sometimes say which is really nice um so something that architecturally lots of light lots of sense of uplift you know not a dark oppressive like building but a, an uplifting inspiring building 
And then you'd have to get a really brilliant welcome. Ideally, I'd like people to be there welcoming people from when they're they're driving their cars in. You know, you get mm. like freaking Disney World. You get welcomed as you step out of your car. <laughs> you know? Right, right there. Someone is there to say, oh, we're so glad you're here. And everyone's really smiling and taking you in. And then I just, for me, I love that music filled the, the thing about contemporary megachurches I love is how much music there is. Sometimes most mm. of them service is music and it's really contemporary. It's really easy to sing along and they've got wonderful, like the thing that really gets me is when they have the lighting that, that goes along with the music. Like it's a total aesthetic experience. I love it. I love that. And then when the pastor comes in to speak and they're giving a sermon, but the music is still behind and the music and the lighting like responds to what they're saying i'm like oh that's what i want now i could never do it in st louis because so many of my members would be like i'm running for the hills this is too churchy and i understand that we're not going to just immediately do that any of my listeners not immediately. not immediately do that but there's something about that not immediately you hear that um the the total aesthetic experience that is completely absorbing i, I come from the theater right i did perform in the theater since i was i was in um, in school, I I studied theatre as an undergraduate. I was really good at it. I know this is a dickish thing to say, but I was very good at it, and I really considered going into theatre. Many of my friends who, you know, I did theatre with in school and and in university, not very welcoming to gay people. The, yeah, I know. It's not very it would not fit in. <laughs> well, I could tell you some stories about that, but I won't. Um, <laughs> but. The uh, the first time I was ever propositioned was by uh, by an employer uh, in the theatre when I was oh well no I guess I was nineteen by then, um, but so this uh, I have a, and what was interesting to me about the theatre when I was younger was the the theatre that was actually religious right so I was really interested in the classical. Um, the three day, the tragedies when they were performed in in classical Greece were actually parts of a religious ceremony mm -hmm. that went on for many days. It yeah. wasn't like we would go to the theater for entertainment. It was part of a huge religious ceremony. I was fascinated by that stuff, fascinated by Peter Brook's kind of exploration of the most basic theatrical communication you could do across all humankind. I was really interested in theater as ritual, as, and I used to do things, you know, at Cambridge, we put on productions that were very ritualistic, very participatory. And I loved that stuff. And it was a very difficult decision for me as to whether I really wanted to pursue theater or not. And sometimes I think maybe I made a mistake. I should have gone to theater. But um, but the, the thing that fascinated me about the theater was the ability to bring people in the same space and time together in a shared experience mm. that helped us learn something about each other and about the world in which we, we live. And when I feel most successful in my work at the ethical studies, when we approximate something like that is when we create a, a shared experience that is unique to those people in that space at that time. So I, I gave a talk, for instance, when the eclipse, there was a massive solar eclipse happening in St. Louis and millions of people were coming to the city. And I thought, well, this is a good way to get tons of people to come to the building. I'll do a talk about the, the cultural history of eclipses across human, across human cultures mm. all across time. And no one was doing that. Everyone was talking about the science of it, but no one was talking about the cultural aspect. And like 400 people came, it was a big deal. But the, the whole point for me was not to do an academic lecture 
It was to provide people with an aesthetic experience that had learning in it, but was a shared celebration of our togetherness and our place in the universe, in the cosmos. And that's why for me, the person I look up to more than anyone in doing this work is Carl Sagan. And that mm. TV series, Cosmos, his novels, his, his ability to combine the rational, the scientific with the, the numinous, the existential, that is where I really, really get excited. My first ever academic paper that I got published was on planetarium shows. And the reason why <laughs> I did it on planetarium shows, I'm not kidding, it was published in the Planetarian, the Journal of Planetarium Studies. James, and there is no need to explain. Everyone who's listening knows what the Planetarian is. We've planetarium. all got subscriptions. I've got two. I hope so. It's a great magazine. But the, I, I love planetarium shows. I used to go with my granddad to the one that, that uh, is next to Man Two Swords, which now doesn't do planetarium shows anymore, which is very sad. Um, but I love them because you're learning about the universe, but it's actually mm. an aesthetic and for me almost a religious experience to, to feel our smallness in the cosmos. Like that was what it was really about. And so I was fascinated by that sort of thing. So that is where this work comes alive for me is that total aesthetic experience that connects something deep in us to the other people around us. And I, I honestly, I don't feel like we get it very often in the work that we do. I, I, I worry sometimes that, that I've gotten a bit lost because that, that's when I come really alive. Mm. That's what I really want to do. But there are so few spaces to do that that aren't religious that I've, I've found a place where I can do some of that, but it's not exactly what I want to do, if that makes sense. So that's, it's a difficult thing to talk about because I, don't, I kind of feel like I'm still groping to find the perfect place to do this work. Well, I think there's uh, on like I've and I've had sort of, you know, Sunday assembly when we started it, you know, we went and started it because we were like, okay, we can do sort of non religious church and go and uh, okay, we will go and first copy the things that we know. And that's introduction at the start. And then, uh, and then we're gonna have, I remember we went, hey, instead of one song at the start, let's have two songs. I remember I went to Hillsong, this huge evangelical church, well, uh, Pentecostal church, and they had five at the top. I was like, right. what? This is fantastic. Uh, and, uh, and then, and then Pippa said, she's like, okay, well, you know, they, she's like, you always start with a song. You don't start with the intro. So it's like, oh yeah, just start on the songs. Again, that's what this church does. And what is but then after a while like you go and set that up and you know it still works really well we're all in a room like there's but actually if you i think people are concerned about like getting into these spaces which are more emotional like it would be they would love it if they went to a theater show where the main like all that stuff which is taken for granted in the theater the main character's talking okay we're going to go from uh, to put a blue wash on the stage and we're going to go and have like something in the minor key behind mm -hmm. we're going to go for one spotlight there we go like that is like everyone would be like oh this is great theater you do that in a church and everyone's like wow you're gonna you're manipulating my emotions and exactly like, but but it's also there's this really interesting i often think it's like you if you go to a gym you sign up in order to be manipulated into doing the thing that you want right yeah you right know, it, 
and, and, and it's not manipulation like this is this is such a fear of so many people that i find in in the united states particularly where religion particularly christianity is much stronger and more hegemonic than it is in the united kingdom and most western wealthy democracies but it so many people who are not religious in america they are very afraid of anything that feels like a church because they feel like once mm. you start turning on the music once you start using the lighting once you start engaging emotions they're being manipulated they're being puppet you know puppets pulling the strings and i get the the feeling of that because your emotions are very powerful and they can move you places you didn't expect to go and so you're not necessarily entirely in control of your own experience and they want to sit back from the experience and rationally analyze everything as it goes on do i agree with that do i agree with that do i and i find myself doing that a lot of the time but but when we try and use emotion we're not manipulating we're communicating we're communicating in a way that helps people understand big ideas and my my belief is and i think that the way we've moved our programming in the ethical society and the impact that's had on the people who are coming to us demonstrates that it's true there are far more people out there who are who want to give up something of themselves in order to engage in a communal experience than people who are afraid of it and that we've we've been mistaken into only catering to the smaller group of people who are really afraid of that and we've missed the massive group of people who are not really religious but who still want to be part of something bigger than themselves yeah the uh that i uh this is the the sound of two podcasters agreeing with themselves uh the uh though when you said it's not manipulation it's communication sounds like something the propagandist in chief would say from someone <laughs> no no, no, no was it's very it's very different and well i mean that's a, a piece of master uh master communication in, in inverted commas there uh the, and then i one thing which i have like you mentioned it like that feeling that you get of the when you're singing i'm always fascinated to find out about like what that is and and so what I really want to do is like one find out like genuinely what is that feeling like how do you experience it that feeling of like the spiritual the divine that like and and how do you feel it and what language do you put on it okay so there are different levels for me and there's there's just singing in a chorus like any any like choir rehearsal oh, no 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 bullshit. i'm talking the stuff when you're just like but you oh, want the peak. who am i like what yeah. is i am this but i'm not this i don't exist i exist more than ever i'm gonna take you to a moment when i think i was about 16 so coming to the end of of my schooling and i was singing with a group of friends we had a four-part harmony group it was called ingeniously four voices and we were doing our first public performance because we'd just been put together. And it was a small little concert in our new music school on the grounds of the campus. This is sounding so privileged as I say this. Yes, we had a music school. And it was in the foyer. And, and before we went on to perform, I was listening to the, to the other students performing. And one of them was playing the cello. And while he was playing, I just had the most extraordinary experience. I was like kind of looking around at all the people watching this and listening to it at the same time and kind of flowing with the music and then it was like 
it, it really was like some barrier between myself and other people just fell away. And I felt like I was connected to everybody else, but it wasn't really I was connected to everybody else because there wasn't a me and an everybody else. There was just a big sea of everything. And I was part of the big sea of everything. And I was at the same time massively bigger because I was part of everything and massively smaller because I wasn't really in existence at, at all. And, and that feeling persisted as we were going up to perform. And then I kind of did this performance in this rapturous way that that um, I remember when we started, we just the 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 choir master, the conductor, you know, gave us a starting tone, and we sang our starting tone, and the that's all we sang, and the whole audience was like, ah, oh, just the tone. They felt something coming oh, out of no. us, and and. And then we sang the, these pieces. I still remember what they, they were, at least one of them. And it was just a completely exuberant experience. I don't know what exuberant means etymologically, but it was like out of something. Like I really felt like it was an out-of-body experience. Yeah. And as a, as a young person, I was fascinated by those experiences. I would read tons of books, including really woo, crazy books that I wouldn't recommend to people as scientific anything nowadays. But I, I started, I, I honestly thought that I had had some sort of religious experience. And I started to read the works of Christian mystics and things like that mm -hmm. to try and understand and then I happened to get uh, Abraham Maslow's work on peak experience. And I was like, oh, shit, you can have a totally naturalistic, non-religious account of this. And he explains, right? He literally puts in numbers, you're going to feel this, like, mm. weird sense of time, uh, um, uh, dissipated sense of self, like all these. And it was much more precise than any of the religious texts. It was really, I was like, that's it. That's what I experienced exactly there. So I started to read humanistic psychologists like Maslow, like Carl Rogers. Um, and that's actually what set me on my life path, right? It was because I became ah. fascinated with... Um, with humanistic psychology and they did a lot of work in education and i became really convinced that you know people have a, a their whole thing about humanistic psychology is about human potential and how how mm. we've kind of built societies that do not maximize human potential and we really should um and so that's why i decided to become a high school teacher which i was just disastrous that was a really bad teacher worst ever um, made me really sad. I mean, I was really, I was suicidal for a long time. Oh, I really God. remember one time. Jim, I when, was so bad because I was just laughing along. I know, saying, I know. I was the worst. It's fine. I don't feel he, anything about it. Then he no, said it was I was funny. suicidal and I was like, oh God, Looking I'm back, not laughing at that. There, were, there are many funny stories I could tell about being a high school teacher and I've, I've written part of a book about it because it was so hilarious because I was so bad. I mean, I was so bad, but I was, I thought I mean, it was that part where you committed, you, what were, you were sort of like contemplating suicide sounds like an absolute laugh riot james that's it really where was. the money shot is but i did i did sound and that's something that has stayed with me in the sense that one's mm. own appreciation for one's own life can be quite fragile because i remember yes. once i was i hated going to school when i was teaching and i was standing at the stop and I was just willing my train to be late. Like I was like, please be late, please be late. So I don't have to go to work. And then it wasn't late and I could see it coming and I'd be like, well, there's an easy solution to this. And I was really, 
I really thought like, oh, I can just step oh, in front of the train. Man. Oh, stop it. And then I was like, oh shit, I'm really in trouble. I need to go speak to someone. And I did, and I got through it and I finished my training program and I actually did, did it. Teach first, my training program graduated me with distinction, which shows you what absolute bullshit that teacher training program is. <laughs> teach but, first, commit um, suicide, set the second. That's the classic. <laughs> that would, yeah, that would have been great for their PR, wouldn't it? Um, but, but I really, that experience um, really set me on a path of being fascinated about the kind of higher reaches of human capacity. And, but I really also never wanted to lose my mind, right? I was really clear that there's mm -hmm. a lot of bullshit written about this. And I didn't ever want to be so, to succumb to the bullshit or write any myself. And that's a difficult tension because I want to be immersed in these wonderful experiences, but I also want to keep my critical distance. That's very difficult to do. You can't do it at the same time. So that's an interesting tension within my approach to this. Can't one. you? Maybe you can. I don't know. I don't know if you can. Like, I've had some amazing experiences of just giving myself over to the experience. Like, I remember uh, you were talking some time ago, or we were talking together mm. about your time in Edinburgh. And when I went and I was in university and we did a show in Edinburgh called Stalin the Musical. And um, uh, I went to a ton of shows. I was mm. so into theater at the time. I went to 47 shows wow. while in the month I was there. I know because I had a notebook and I wrote about every single one of them because I was a huge nerd. And one of them was called The Paint Show. And it was a participatory performance thing. You all put on these white kind of boiler suits as you went in. And then there was these strange creatures that emerged out of paddling pools and stuff. It was really kind of like a rave. Oh. And they had these colored and you painted yourself you painted other people and you danced around to the music and you interacted with these animals and I just remember going totally wild like I just vanished into the experience and I love that I love that and I think a lot of people who know me now will be very surprised by that they would think that I'm kind of because I'm very I can be very analytical mm. people think that I'm kind of closed off from my emotions and I'm like you don't understand me at all it's just a total difference in my, I can be like very analytical when I need to be, but what I really want to be, I really want something that is good enough and convincing enough that I'm going to give myself over to it. And so that's, I feel that tension in myself a lot. There was, I've got a note here where you said you're, and it was earlier when you said, oh no, that's you're terrified of not making the most of life, but there seems to be a bit of a fear in you of, giving yourself over to things as well. Like yes. you were speaking of that, that yeah, there was a, you could do that, but then you'd go and lose a part of yourself that you wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to have that rational part of yourself. What does that, like, is that true? Is there like a sense of fear? I think there is some, I think that's something I've been thinking about recently which is that there, I think it might be a fear of other people's judgment or I don't know what it is exactly. I've always been worried that I could do more if I wasn't afraid of what people's reactions might be or afraid of failure or afraid of, but people look at my life from the outside and say, what are you talking about? You're doing exactly what you want in life. You're one of the most, people say, you're one of the most productive people I know. And I feel like I'm mm. fucking lazy. Right. So I, I'm looking at my own life from the inside and be like, what are you talking about? I just play video games for 10 hours. I, I do know that I, I work very fast 
in terms of the th when I put my mind to something and I want to complete it, I can finish in a short amount of time what would take many people a lot longer. And so that my therapist is trying to encourage me to be okay with that and just accept that that's how I work. But I do wonder sometimes, well, what if I just work like that all the time? Like then I would be incredibly mm. prolific and I would have written 10 books and, um, and maybe I'd be happier. I think, I think though this fear question, I don't know. I, I, I think part of it is I want to do the right thing. Mm. I ultimately decided not to, but I had a place at central school of speech and drama and I didn't take it. And I went into teaching instead. And, and part of the main reason was I feel like I need to give back to the world that I, f I feel very privileged for the education I've had, the upbringing I've had. I think I need to give back to the community that I have a responsibility to other people to, to be an offering to others who didn't have the opportunities that I had. And that, to go into theater would be selfish in a way. It would be something that I really wanted to do that wouldn't necessarily give back to the community. I think that's bullshit, by the way. I think I was totally wrong, but that's how I thought when I was a teenager about it. Um, do you think you're still so wrong I now? Would you make, if you knew then, would you, would you go into acting now, do you think, if you knew it? It's you so difficult because I, I, I think... I've, I now realize that the way you really reach people is through story and art and not through rational argument and ideas and things. That, 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 that fundamentally what shapes our culture and society are, are myths and stories that we tell each other about how the world should be. And, and theater and movie stars and people like that are, are storytellers. But, but I also was pretty smart in that a couple of things I realized, which is that only a tiny fraction of people who go into the arts actually get to do the sort of art they want. Most of them don't actually get to create the sorts of mm. works or stories that they want to be a part of. You take whatever job you can get. And if it, it uh, almost all, almost all actors are doing work that they might not choose to do if it was their favorite thing. Like, and mm. I, I worked with professional performers because I was doing this work with the, not with Shakespeare in prisons and we had professional actors and they, they weren't always community minded people who wanted to give stories to the world to help people live better. They were often as petty and annoying as everybody else and sometimes a lot worse. And they, they didn't, it, I didn't feel like going that route would necessarily lead me to feeling fulfilled and creating the sort of work I wanted to. And, and James, are you saying that there's some petty actors out there who really are, are quite self-involved? I met a few really petty self-involved I mean, people. That is going to come. Me. It's going to come as huge news to everyone who's had uh, any interaction with actors. They'll be stunned. I'm sorry to swear <laughs> actors in that way, but it was for me. It was the sense looking back that. For, for me, performing was a religious thing. Like it was, I was good as an actor because I totally gave myself over to the role. I remember once I was doing Oedipus in high school. That's how precocious our high school was. And so I was playing Oedipus. And I remember I was doing one of the monologues and I realized halfway through that I had absolutely no memory of the last... 10 to 15 mm. minutes of performing and that and I came back to myself and lost my line right because I was like oh shit I'm standing in this room with yeah. all these people um what the fuck am I doing here it was I really vividly remember it and that made me think th this is like 
this is more of a religious thing. It's shamanic in a way. And that's what I was always interested in. And so sidling towards religion in the way that I've done, it makes total sense to me. So I don't know that I would make that choice, but you can do it any other way, right? You can get into the theater like someone like a Peter Brook did and go towards religion through the theater, right? You can, you can go a lot of ways in life, but I'm happy with where I am but I do want to keep moving towards where my real, my real passions are. Cause I feel like I haven't quite got there yet. I'm very comfortable mm. and fulfilled in the work I'm doing, but I'm not quite feeling as connected to my core drive as I would like to be. I know that's a very privileged thing to say, but. No, I, th I think it's really interesting that like one of the reasons I wanted to get into this, idea of experience and the divine and the sort of you know the high there's moments when you're connecting to it in its utmost is i'm not sure that when i like i i was quite surprised in this conversation how central that is to you in a way because actually when we sort of talk about it like it's previously i'm not sure that has come up because you are uh, like you, you've read a book or two, uh, you know, you're sort of very uh, conceptual, you, you know, you've got able to piece together the ideas, but, you know, speaking about like that uh, incident when you were like, uh, sounds like there was a, a peak experience, which is at the heart of like this change in direction of like understanding of Maslow and then like these sort of theatrical experiences and, you know, the importance of the experience of the congregation that is yeah it's just really like it's, it's a physical thing you are and and it's about losing a lot of stuff as well that's something which like in talking about it has really come over as well i'm i'd be quite interested now sort of to go and connect those two like what is like either from an evolutionary perspective or from a sort of point of view of like cultural like you know maybe cultural like within our history like what is your interpretation of why these peak experiences like these godlike experiences like what what do they give you have they well maybe like you've i think you've talked spoken about it enough in your life but like how do they help humanity like what's and then what's their position in the world at the moment that's a really profound question. So uh, I want to first speak a little bit to that part you pointed about, because I, I think a lot of people don't see the part of me that we've been talking about here. And I worry about that because it means that I am a bit disconnected from what I really want to do with my life and what I want to connect to. And I think I always think about, so, so I don't believe in the MBTI type thing. <laughs> I don't think there's good scientific evidence for it, but at the same time, it's Mate, very I think helpful you to are understand. A, I th I'm going to guess. I think you're a C U N T. I yeah. think very rare <laughs> that's exactly one. Right. Uh, that's my boring. That's what uh, my, my husband says. At that's least. my boring Myers Briggs um, joke. Apologies uh, to everyone. So she, my wonderful therapist, says that I am an ENFP who's been taught to be to express his thinking all the way through his life. Right. Because I've always thought of myself as ENTP, right? The intu extroverted, intuitive, thinking, perceiver, right? And she says, no, you're an F. You, your fundamental way you connect the world is through feelings. 
but you've gone through a series of academic experiences at a very high level that have taught you to express your thinking. And that's good in the sense that you can do things that lots of us can't do, but you, you, you have to reconnect with the fact that you are fundamentally emotional. That, and she's totally right in the sense of my immediate response to things is intuitive and emotional, right? I have very strong intuitive emotional mm. reaction, which helps my leadership a lot because I have a real good sense immediately of whether something is a good or bad idea. And, and whether I can expl explaining that is post, but I can, I can do it, but it, it's mm. after the fact. And, and my, I, I think that one of the areas of major dissatisfaction in my life right now is that I'm stuck in certain work settings, particularly, I always talk too much publicly about this stuff, but whatever, particularly our national movement has put me in a place where I don't feel like I can really be, really connect with it emotionally and with my full self. And I feel like- I've And by national movement, explain to people who- Yes, yeah, so, so the Ethical Society of St. Louis, the congregation I lead is the largest of a collection of humanist congregations in America that is united under an umbrella called the American Ethical Union. And they're like our national denominational body that kind of supports and gives direction to all the ethical societies. Um, and so I have colleagues, other clergies of other ethical societies. Um, and, and I feel like I, I haven't been able to be my full self in that space really at all. And that part of it is that it's bringing out the critical rational um kind of emotionally distant aspect of it because i don't quite feel safe enough to bring my feelings my vulnerability mm. to so that's been a great source of, of professional dissatisfaction and disappointment honestly um but in terms of uh in terms of the the centrality to humanity of these sorts of religious spiritual ecstatic existential experiences whatever you want to call them i have i don't know that i've read an account which i really felt was really convincing of like i was like oh yeah that makes total sense as to why human beings have these experiences i'm totally convinced that they are natural human experiences that we're not connecting with anything outside ourselves that this is something that well except the community of people like natural things outside ourselves it's like nature and other people etc but we're not connecting to something on another layer of reality. We, we are experiencing a psychological phenomenon that's generated by our own bodies, like the, the tons of drugs that are always running through our own bodies and created naturally by it and things like that. Uh, and I think there's lots of evidence for that. I think the best evidence is that you can induce these experiences through pharmacological intervention or even through transcranial magnetic stimulation. So you can literally like turn parts of people's brains off and make them have out of body experiences. It's fascinating. My suspicion is it, it must be something to do with building community and bringing people together um, to feel a sense of, of commitment to a collective. Because that because these experiences for me have always been communal. They're when I'm singing together with other people, when I'm dancing together with other people, or that strange sense of community you sometimes have with the whole cosmos, when mm -hmm. you feel like I am part of all, which I have sometimes had. I have to say, I don't know if you're the same person. I have those feelings less and less as I get older. Maybe it's because of age. Maybe it's because I put myself in a situation where I'm not having them. I do less gay clubbing than I used to. Um, but, me too, James. Me too. I know, Sanderson. It's sad how that happens, isn't it? Yeah, there's, but there's. I think it's just like that question of responsibility, isn't it? 
I think that's, and then you go and look at why people would go to a congregation is as I've heard someone describe Pentecostal churches as mysticism for the masses is that yeah. you can be a 45 year old accountant in uh, Charlotte and you can go to your local mega church and you're going to have like a transformative experience and then you're going to learn how to pray and you're going to get in touch with it and so that's why i think those systems work well because they're like this is something which is really important to humanity which is where we started this and then these are actually structured ways that you could get in touch with it uh i guess the oh, there's so many different like ways to like for me the that feeling of being, like there's certainly an explanation, which is that it's really useful uh, uh, as a community for people to feel that because in a way that feeling that you described when you were singing in St. Paul's is also true, right? Like we are all connected. You are very small. Yeah. You are very yes. big. You are, and that there is, that is, that is definitely true and there are like it helps us if large groups of people feel that together so then you're like oh yeah, yeah you know like i'm super fucked off with you two days ago because i you you borrowed my club and then you didn't return my club this is a conversation between two cavemen uh and uh and so you can see that there is actually a a truth uh, about who we are, which obviously having an ego is useful because it's sometimes useful to think of yourself as a person who is doing a thing. And this is mine, that's yours. And so, and then I guess there is another one where there's a, a type of knowledge which is held in those moments, which again when we're in like whether you might call it our ego brain when we're in a certain type of rational brain is good for one type of thinking but you go to a place where you can go and connect with that and you're like oh no that's right that's wrong oh no actually this is right for me you know this is the place where i've got to go and that but you can only access it by doing a certain like sequence of events or there's certain types of experience and then it can be together or it can be you go and eat the mushrooms which are, grow out of that bear shit or you go and stand by the waterfall and you don't eat any food for two days and then you also go and get in in touch with it and that's a you know that's just like a different type of thinking as well there's like different insights you get from it and i think the part where i'm really uh interested in is then the how our the interpretation that you put on those experiences goes and uh sort of like uh, ends up making them more or less useful to you like if you just go if you go raving oh, like i've that was i think like i went raving when i was uh my teenage years and until uh quite a few years after that like but like later like when i was 18 or something but because I already had this outlook on life, which is, you know, life's like fantastic. It's amazing that we can be here. Like for me, it was like, like connecting to all of that. And it was, so I was, uh, you know, it sort of made sense with in a, like also a sort of 
my epistemological framework as well and my philosophical framework and and if you are there's that famous thing when William James I think it's William James speaks about people doing magic mushrooms and there's a load mm. of these like of the people who took magic mushrooms who were religious 12 of the 13 people who took them ended up becoming ministers because they had that experience and like oh shit I just chatted to God and so again that was their lens that they put on it so it's like a lot of it is like trying to make these feelings in make these feelings important again but like in a like that you that they're a fundamental part of being human that you can learn so much from it yourself that as a community sharing those together isn't a distraction it actually it actually gets to a place which is more true than so much of the rest of our life like uh, yeah so much of the rest of our life is us trying to get to that place and that they've got so much to teach us yeah i mean i think it's a huge topic you're opening up but the thing i take from it is that some of the kind of religious experiences that we discuss the experiences that are often interpreted within a religious framework firstly are human experiences that anybody can have that the frame that this is exactly what maslow said people will interpret it based on their current beliefs but the mm. experience is primary right and that's i think relating to what you're saying about william james and the and the ministers on mushrooms which sounds like a great <laughs> podcast and shit someone should do that um but also this sense that there there isn't necessarily a distinction between these sorts of ecstatic experiences and truth and that actually they can be roots to getting at things that are genuinely true. Not true in a kind of hyper-relativistic, true for you, but not for anyone else's sense, but actually are real insights about your own life and about the human organism. And that for me gets to the heart of one of the things I've always wanted to do with this work, which is that I want a true religion in the sense that I want something that recreates the communal, the experiential philosophical aspects of a religious community that doesn't have any bullshit in it that doesn't tell people things that are not true and i think a lot of people's worry when they're not religious they're like well again this is from an american context where i've done this work but those sorts of experiences are religious and religion isn't true so those experiences aren't true right so that is not logical right that's a, that's a uh, that doesn't follow actually logically mm. speaking and, and it, it means that people allow religious organizations and traditions to colonize a lot of experiences that are just human experiences. So I literally have had arguments with people within the sort of broader atheist humanist movement in the United States about group singing, right? With some of them saying, no, group singing is a religious thing and we shouldn't do it because it makes people feel feelings and that overthrows your reason. And I'm like, are you oh mental, frankly? No, no blood from your partner either. <laughs> Otherwise you won't be able to rationally engage with who's doing the shot. Right. Right, exactly. It's like group singing pre almost certainly predated any explicit religious conceptions. Religions just took that because of the experiences that it gave people and it used that for its own purposes to give to say 
that group singing is now inherently religious is to give them a, a significant and beautiful part of what it means to be a human being and to cut ourselves off from a part of our own humanity. So a lot of this for me is to reclaim our entire humanity, including the weird esoteric bits, but mm. just in a clear headed way so that we we don't have to add a lot of of religious bullshit on top of the human experience the human experience is enough but we have to take all of it in the round the uh <sighs> I, I, that's great i'm gonna uh we're gonna wrap it up there one thing that i will say is that for some of our uh listeners i think we and this is something to delve in and one of the reasons that i enjoy our conversations is that uh you sometimes have got more of a uh, sort of like uh, wanting to have a go at religion sort of uh, edge to your conversations than I do. Really? Uh, whereas, uh, and I, you know, uh, I've often said that like, I've, I think there's a way of doing that where everyone can be in the room at the same time. So, uh, you know, I will just do that, not in a shaming way of you, James, because that is uh, not at all my vibe, but just say that if you are religious, we're also, you know, keep no, I get believing it. in it. We want, like, one of the reasons for doing this is, like, I often feel so that everyone can be in the room at the same time, uh, no matter what fucking bullshit you believe. Uh, the <laughs> <laughs> no, so look, hey, man, thanks so much for this. I started off by saying how great you are. I really do think that. And, like, when, often when uh, I, as we all do nowadays, people ask you, how was your year? And then I often find myself talking, well, God, it was an absolute nightmare. Lost all my work as a trainer and speaker and uh, like live performer. And then I'll sort of go on to, but I started a podcast and do this. And then it was one of the weird things is, is because like, often uh, relationships don't necessarily go into one area or another, but actually like, we first started talking about a book that we will write on lifefulness, but actually this, uh, our working relationship is something that uh, I'm just so appreciative of. I enjoy it so much and it's uh, like a huge pleasure for me. So uh, thanks so much for putting up with my questions and uh, well, guess what? I'll probably speak to you quite soon. Hey, that was it. That was the uh, interview with James. I. I learned loads about him that I didn't know that story about you know how music and that uh, how that musical performance is so central to all he did uh yeah it was just fascinating and then also if you listen to the Christmas episode we also spoke about experience and you know the peak experience transcendental experiences as being a vital part of this work and I that's not necessarily something that I speak to James about so much it's often on me but then I realized it was really core to what he was doing as well so yeah thanks so much for uh, listening and look thanks so much for listening all of this year uh, we couldn't have done this without you uh, and the and again then the biggest thing is that well like everyone listening to this we're so grateful like we have got about and you know like in the podcast world there's a podcast with like 400 million downloads a minute or whatever it is uh but yeah we're sort of regularly getting 1500 listeners a week which i think puts us in the top 20 percent of podcasts which is it's great like we're uh, really pleased with that uh we only started recently and so thanks to everyone who's listening and 
really thanks to also everyone who's joining in on the community side of things. Uh, we started the podcast before there was a community, but what I'm loving is that, yeah, there is now a group of people who are in connection and in communion with each other, sort of uh, putting lifefulness into practice. And so, yeah, that's, like for me, just so rewarding uh, because that's why I do this. Well, the, all the different parts of this uh, mission are why I do it. But just being able to you see people connecting and changing and learning and growing, uh, sort of opening up, confronting difficulties, being supported, being loved, like that's oh, where it's at. And uh, yeah, I'm also quite excited because we're going to be launching Lifefulness 101, our uh, 12-week course. And there's still a possibility to join in the small groups as well. So if you go to lifefulness.io forward slash membership or you go to Google Lifefulness 101, uh, then you can find the small groups and course respectively. Uh, and yeah, we'd just really love to get you involved. And uh, And I can't like wait to see where that goes in the rest of the year like there were some really tough times this year like really real moments when i was like damn i go like am i gonna have to abandon this am i gonna i just don't like where, where we're we gonna get money from and yeah we've sort of come good so thanks to you all uh thanks to james i thanked him so much during this podcast but i love you man uh thanks to mavs uh, i also love you mavs uh the producer thanks to will i love you i don't know if the graphic designer listens the whole time uh thanks to roman rapak i love you i definitely know you're not listening uh, uh roman rapak who made the music that you're listening to right now <laughs>